0: Friends, would you turn with me, please, to the words that we read in 1 Kings 21. 1 Kings chapter 21, and reading verses 20 to 24. He said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because... You have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut you off from Ahab, every male bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens they shall eat. I'm sometimes asked the question... I think it's David Morrison who asks me at most, maybe it's in our radio shows when we do it once a year, but do I ever preach the same sermon more than once? And friends, I have to confess there are times that I do, especially around the Christmas New Year period. I was really caught out a few weeks ago when it was a Tuesday night prayer meeting and I preached a sermon from Luke and Uh, A few days later, I was with one of my elders, and he informed me that he had nudged his wife in the course of the meeting, and he had pointed out that he knew the exact headings that I would be preaching from that evening, and she had said to him, how do you know what he's going to do? And he said he preached that sermon back in 2018. I was well and truly uh, caught out, but it's good to have elders who keep me on my toes and who know Uh, what uh, I'm preaching and what I'm repeating. This week, though, I was reading about the Southern Baptist pastor, Robert Lee, who pastored Bellevue Baptist Church in the early 20th century. Uh, And his most famous sermon was preached not once, not twice, but, believe this or not, 1,275 times, and was on the text that we're studying this evening. His title was Payday Someday. And tonight we're continuing our studies in the life of Elijah under the same title, Payday Someday. We're looking at this under three headings, the corruption, the condemnation, and the compassion. The corruption, the condemnation, and the compassion. First, the corruption. Look at verses 1 through to 16. Here the author focuses on the corruption displayed by Ahab. In verses 1 to 4, the author highlights the coveting. We can begin by noting the request of Ahab in verses 1 and 2. We're introduced to a man called Naboth. He is a Jezreelite, and he owns a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab. And one day, Ahab approaches Naboth with a request. He asks Naboth to give him his vineyard so that he can turn it into a vegetable garden. And he offers to give Naboth a better vineyard in exchange or even the cash equivalent. It's a very reasonable offer. But the request of Ahab is met with a refusal from Naboth. Look at verse 3. Naboth knows his Bible. He knows the book of Joshua that we have been studying at our prayer meetings. And he knows that the land had been allocated and gifted by the Lord to his family. It wasn't his to sell, wasn't his to exchange, wasn't his to give. And so he says to Ahab in verse 3, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And we see the reaction of Ahab to Naboth's refusal in verse 4. He doesn't argue the point with Naboth. He simply goes back to his house, sullen and vexed, and he lies in his bed, refusing to eat. He's like a spoiled child when their parent eventually says, no, you can't have it. Then in verses 5 through to 16, the author moves from the coveting to the corruption. We hear the pillow talk in verses 5 to 7. Jezebel, Ahab's notorious prophet-killing wife, now appears on the scene as she goes up to Ahab's bedroom. And she proceeds to ask him what's troubling him. What is leaving him so listless? And Ahab replies by telling Jezebel about his very reasonable request and Naboth's subsequent refusal. And upon hearing this, Jezebel explodes. She cries out, do you not govern Israel? Jezebel had grown up in the palace of the Phoenician kings. She knew how kings behaved when their subjects refused them. And she now says to Ahab, you're not much of a king. You're not a proper king. You're, you're a bit of a weakling. You're a bit of a sap. You're, you're not like my father and his father before him. I I honestly don't know why I married you, Ahab. And she goes on and tells Ahab to get up and to eat and to be cheerful because she will give him the vineyard of Naboth. We move then from the pillow talk to the plot in verses 8 to 14. Jezebel immediately goes into action and she signs and seals and sends some letters in the king's name to the elders and leaders of Jezreel. She instructs him to hold a fast and to have Naboth seated in a prominent place. She then tells him to have two worthless men ready who will then accuse Naboth of cursing the Lord, that is blasphemy, and cursing the king, that is treason. And after hearing the testimony of these two witnesses, the elders and leaders of Jezreel are to then have Naboth stoned to death. Once the letters are sent, the plot goes on like clockwork. The fast is announced. Naboth is seated and then accused and executed along with his sons, as we see in 2 Kings chapter 9. And the messages relate to Jezebel. Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. It was all so smooth. It was all so slick. And it just cost Jezebel a few stamps. Nothing more Nothing less. We then move from the plot to the possession in verses 15 to 16. Jezebel now goes to Ahab. and She tells him to get up and to take possession of the land because Naboth is no longer alive. Naboth is dead. And Ahab rises up to go down to Naboth's vineyard and he takes possession of it. Friends, as we consider these verses, we've been given a picture of the downward spiral of sin. A picture of the downward spiral of sin, that's what we see in Ahab. It all started with this overwhelming desire for a vineyard that wasn't his and wasn't his right to take. That desire dominated him. That desire gripped his mind, it gripped his thoughts, it gripped his heart. And the desire led to displeasure when he was told that he couldn't have it. He was angry with Naboth, but we might also say he was angry with the Lord. And that displeasure led to deception, as Ahab and Jezebel then play fast and loose with the truth and have Naboth falsely accused. Now, you might be sitting here tonight and you're saying, well, yes, we can see how Jezebel played fast and loose with the truth. But what about Ahab? Well, Look at verses 1 to 4. Naboth goes up to Ahab and he says, you can't have this field because the Lord forbids it. And then when you hear Ahab speaking to Jezebel in verses 5 to 7, there is no mention of the Lord. He simply says, I went up to Naboth and I asked him for his vineyard and Naboth refused to give it. He is playing fast and loose with the truth. He is working with deceptive words. And that deception leads to the death of Naboth, a death that is simply reported to the king and the queen in a very cool, a very cold fashion. Naboth is dead, no other questions asked. Ahab is very much on a a downward spiral of sin, desire, displeasure, deception, death. And there is a lesson for ourselves. James, the brother of Jesus, writes in his epistle, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. It's often been said, and I've said it before, that sin will take you further than you ever intended to go. And it will keep you longer than you ever intended to stay. And it will cost you more than you ever intended to pay. I'm sure that there are many of us here tonight who could add our amen to that statement. I'm sure that many of us can look back and we can see the ways in which our small compromises with sin led to great spiritual collapses and catastrophes. I'm sure that many of us can resonate with the words of Richard Owen Roberts, who said, your life as a Christian is seemingly full of Christ and there is no room for self, but an aggressive sin comes in and wiggles his way in, crowding out Christ just a little bit. You give a place to this sin and soon another does the same thing. Sin by sin, error by error, selfishness by selfishness, the backsliding continues until you are virtually empty of Christ and full of self. Friends, let's examine ourselves this evening and ask the question, is there a sin in our lives that we are leaving unchecked? Is there a sin in our lives that is going to lead us on a downward spiral, a downward spiritual spiral. It might be very, very small. No one else knows about it. No one else notices it. But you're on that spiral and you'll soon spiral out of control. The corruption... Then we have the condemnation. Look at verses 17 to 24. The author now focuses on the condemnation declared by Elijah. Verses 17 to 19, we hear the Lord's words to Elijah. Up to this point, the Lord has been very silent through this narrative. We might find ourselves asking the question where is God? Is he blind to what's taking place in Jezebel? Is he deaf to the cries of Naboth and his sons? Is he deaf to the lies of Ahab and Jezebel? Is he Too paralyzed and unable to do anything about what is taking place. Well, the author doesn't leave us with these questions for long as he shows us the directions that the Lord gives to Elijah in verses 17 to 19. The word of the Lord comes to Elijah. The Lord now speaks. And the Lord instructs him to go to Naboth's vineyard, to go to Ahab, who is in Naboth's vineyard, Naboth's field, which he has taken as his own possession. And furthermore, Elijah is to bring a word of condemnation to Ahab. Look at verse 19. He is to bring the word of the Lord to the king of Israel. And he's to tell the king that he has killed and taken possession of this field. There is no mention of the worthless men of Jezreel. There is no mention of the spineless leaders of Jezreel. There is no mention of the devious queen of Jezreel. The buck stops with Ahab. The buck stops with the leader of the nation. The buck stops with this man who has killed Naboth and taken possession of his vineyard. And Ahab could easily say, but I didn't know. I didn't do anything. But it happened under his watch. And because he has done this, dogs will lick up his blood in the place where they had licked up the blood of Naboth. And so in verses 20 to 24, we hear Elijah's word to Ahab. Elijah goes to Ahab and Ahab greets him with a question. Look at verse 20. Have you found me, O my enemy? What a thing to say. What an insight into Ahab's spiritual condition. He calls the prophet of the Lord, he calls the bearer of the Lord's word, my enemy. And Elijah responds by delivering a solemn word to Ahab in verses 21 to 24. He tells him that he has found him because he has sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. He goes on to tell him that the Lord is going to bring disaster upon him and upon his family. The Lord is going to burn up the house of Ahab. The Lord is going to cut off every male in Israel from Ahab. The Lord is going to make Ahab's house like the houses of Jeroboam and Baasha. Meanwhile, the dogs are going to come and they're going to eat up Jezebel and they will eat anyone belonging to Ahab in the city while the birds will eat anyone belonging to Ahab in the country. None will be given an honourable burial. And you know, friends, as we consider these verses, we're being reminded that there will be a payday for sin. There will be a payday for sin. So we see in Ahab, he thought that he had got away with his sin as he walked through Naboth's vineyard and planned how he would turn it into a vegetable garden. But this is the God whom the psalmist says sees and hears everything. You cannot escape from him. This is the God who knows the secret things. This is the God who knows that Ahab has killed an innocent man and that he has taken what wasn't rightfully his. And now the Lord announces that there is going to be a payday For Ahab, the Lord is going to take action against Ahab and his family. And friends, there is a lesson for ourselves. There is a payday for sin. The word of God is very clear on this. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Romans 1, Paul writes, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The writer to the Hebrews puts it like this, we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. And there is a day of reckoning, there is a day of retribution for all those who remain opposed to God. And it will be a fearful thing to fall into his hands on that day. There will be no sniggering. There will be no sneering. There will be no smirking. There will be no snoring. There will only be the harrowing cry, the harrowing scream. Oh God, oh God, why have you forsaken me? Robert Lee tells the following story in his famous sermon. He writes, When I was pastor of the First Baptist Church of New Orleans, all that I preached and taught was sent out over the radio. In my fan mail, I received letters from a young man who called himself chief of the kangaroo court. Many nasty, critical things he said. One day I received a telephone call from a nurse in the charity Hospital of New Orleans She said, "'Pastor, there is a young man down here whose name we don't know. All he tells us is that he is the chief of the kangaroo court. He is going to die. He says that you are the only preacher in New Orleans that he has ever heard, and he wants to see you. Will you come down?' Yes,' I replied. The nurse introduced me to the young man, saying, "'This, sir, is the chief of the kangaroo court.' I found myself looking into two of the wildest eyes I have ever seen. As kindly as I could, I spoke, saying, "'Hello,' How would he do, he answered in a voice that was discourteous and a furious snarl, more like the voice of a mad wolf than the voice of a rational man. Is there something I can do for you, I asked, as kindly as I could speak. No, not a thing, unless you throw my body to the buzzards when I am dead. If the buzzards will have it, he said with a half shout and with a sort of fierce resentment that made me wonder why he had ever sent for me. Then his voice lost some of the snarl and he spoke again. I sent for you, sir, because I want you to tell these young fellows here something for me. I want you to tell them that the devil pays only in counterfeit money. I stayed with this young man nearly two hours. Occasionally he spoke. There was a desperate earnestness in his voice as he looked at me with wild eyes where terror was enthroned. After a while, I saw those eyes becoming as though they were glass as he gazed at the ceiling above. I saw his huge lean chest heave like bellows. I felt his hand clutch at mine as a drowning man would grab for a rope. I held his hand. I heard the raucous gurgle in his throat. And then he became quiet like a forest when the cyclone is long gone. Tonight, friends, these verses remind us that God is not mocked. He will not be provoked forever. There will be a day of condemnation for every person who continues to resist him, continues to refuse him, continues to reject him, continues to ridicule him. There will be a payday someday. There will be a payday someday. But we don't leave it there because we move then finally to the compassion. Look at verses 25 to 29, where the author now focuses on the compassion demonstrated by the Lord. Verses 25 to 26, we're given a description So far, 1 Kings has given us a very negative assessment of Ahab. We've seen that in 1 Kings 16. We've been told that he did more evil than any who were before him. We've been told that he served and worshipped Baal. We've been told that he did more to provoke the Lord than any who were before him. And now the writer continues this very negative assessment of Ahab in verses 25 and 26. We read that no one sold themselves to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. And we read that he acted abominably like the Amorite as he went after his false gods. Ahab really is, as we've said through this series, the vilest toad to ever squat on the throne of Israel. And then all of a sudden, there's a delay in the Lord's promised judgment. Look at verses 27 to 29. Ahab appears to respond to the Lord's word by repenting. Verse 27, he hears, he carefully listens to what Elijah says, and he tears his clothes. He then puts on sackcloth and he fasts and he lies in a sackcloth and he goes about the place and about the palace in a dejected fashion. Now at this point, many scholars ask the question, was Ahab's repentance genuine? Some claim that it was. And they go so far as to say that Ahab was a converted man, that Ahab was a saved man. And others say there is nothing genuine about it. It was a sham repentance. There was nothing real, nothing sincere going on. Dale Ralph Davis, and you know I quote Dale Ralph Davis as my leading Old Testament authority. Dale Ralph Davis makes a very interesting and very sobering point. Very sobering. He argues that Ahab certainly doesn't seem to be acting. His repentance was sincere at that moment. But it wasn't lasting. It was serious. Temporary. And look at how the Lord responds to that repentance in verses 28 and 29. He speaks to Elijah and he asks in verse 28, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his sons, I will bring the disaster upon his house. There is almost, and we say this reverently, there is almost an excitement in the Lord's voice. It is almost as if the Lord says to Elijah, well, well, look at that. Look at that, Elijah. And having said this, the Lord comes to this resolution. He resolves that the disaster that he had just threatened will not come about in Ahab's lifetime. It will come about in the lifetime of his son. The judgment hasn't been cancelled, but it has been delayed. Now, friends, as we consider these most remarkable verses, we're being given a portrait of the Lord's incredible pity. His gracious heart, his merciful character, his great compassion. That is what we see in Ahab. Here is this, this vile toad. Here is this man who had sold himself to provoke the Lord again and again and again. And yet when he humbles himself before the Lord in the face of coming judgment, the Lord has compassion on him. And there is a lesson for ourselves. The Lord is a God who delights in showing compassion. He is a God who delights in extending grace to the undeserving. We see that in his declaration to Moses, where he says to Moses that he is the Lord who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. We see this when he forgives David, spares him from death, following his rape of Bathsheba and murder of her husband Uriah. We see this when he restores Manasseh, following his repentance in Babylon. We see this when he relents from destroying the city of Nineveh after they respond to Jonah's preaching with repentance. And friends, we see this most of all in Jesus. In Jesus, we see the one who is described as being full of grace and truth. In Jesus, we see the one who is ready to respond to every cry for mercy. In Jesus, we see one who rejoices over every sinner who repents. In Jesus, we see one who is willing to sit down and eat with all those who open the door to him. Here is mercy, friends. Here is grace. Here is compassion that can never be explained, that can never be earned. It can only be joyfully embraced. Isn't that wonderful? I was speaking with my closest friends on Sunday night uh, we have a monthly chat together on Zoom and, and one of them said you know isn't it amazing that we just cannot explain grace we can't explain it we cannot earn it we can only embrace it we can only receive it and so as we close this evening friends there is a word for everyone who's here tonight and everyone who's listening online There's a word for those of us who are Christians, those of us who are in Christ. Tonight, friend, you are a recipient of grace. You are a recipient of compassion. And because you are a recipient of grace, because you are a recipient of compassion, you can rejoice that there is now no condemnation for you. No condemnation for you despite the moments when you fall into sin. And fall into sin, we will. No condemnation for you despite the struggles that you have in your Christian walk. No condemnation for you despite the sufferings that you may be going through that seem to suggest otherwise. Tonight you can look at the Lord's compassion toward Ahab and all the instances of his compassion to his people in his word. And you can rejoice, friend, that this God is your God, a God of compassion. But there is also word for any who may be here tonight, who may not yet be Christians, who may still be outside of Christ. At present, friend, you are going along the road that leads to condemnation. You are hurtling toward that payday. But that doesn't need to be the end of your story. There is a God who is full of compassion. Compassion. There is a God who is rich in mercy. There is a God who is abundant in grace. And tonight he offers you this compassion, this mercy, this grace in the gospel. This compassion, this mercy, this grace that is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And so you now have a choice. You have a choice. And it's a choice that an eight-year-old can make and it's a choice that an 88-year-old can make. And not only can they make this choice, but they have to make this choice. Will you receive this Lord? Will you receive this Savior? Will you receive this Jesus who is full of compassion? Or will you continue to reject him? And eventually be rejected by him the choice is yours. The choice is yours. I can't make it for you. The elders can't make it for you. No one in this congregation can make it for you. Your parents can't make it for you. Your children can't make it for you. Your husband, your wife can't make it for you. The neighbor that you're sitting beside, who you've been going to church with for many years, can't make it for you. You must make this choice. Will you receive or will you reject the God who is, who is so full of compassion and who delights, who delights, friends, to save?